But like, I love sea shanties. What a great, like, there's nothing more fun than singing sea shanties. It makes me want to be an old-timey peasant. I'm like, they mm. they knew what's up with music. That is it's not a peasant, though. That would be a sailor. That's well, a different his thing. family was peasants. That's true. No, they, they were also sailors. <laughs> sailors are peasants. Fishermen. Of, what are the women? The peasants of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Get your motor running. Ooh. Put in your earphones. Listen to a podcast on CFRC. Nobody gonna make it happen except for me, Jesse. And to my right, it's uh, you know how there's Conrad Black. I'm like Comrade Black. My name is Chance. Are you? I black? hated Ooh. that. <laughs> you can't say that you're <laughs> Conrad Black. What the hell? I'm are comrad- you Comrade. Black. What about Comrade Black Pilled? <laughs> I'm Comrade Black Pilled. <laughs> coming in hot. Uh, with me is... Folks, it's Dean. You're listening to the Late Late Capitalism Show, because uh, our, our intro neglected to tell you that. Oh, they know. Uh, also, <laughs> there's going to be swearing uh, and a lot of, of I imagine, uh, brutal murder uh, in this episode. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I figured. And I'm Megan, and also another warning, there'll be jokes about the French, so if you care about them, you yes. know, turn it off. This will be uh-huh. a very francophobic podcast, <laughs> yeah. mostly because we've chosen to look at a very specific period in Canadian history that I feel like is completely unknown outside of the area where it took place. So we're going to be talking about the Quebec Biker War, but I think more importantly, and on a broader scale, we want to try and understand why this particular subculture was so culturally resonant in Quebec and Quebec only. As we're going to talk about throughout, this is going to be a multi-parter. This is going to be more of a long-form series, something we're trying out. First episode, definitely on the main feed. Two and three, you know, we're going to see kind of how it shakes out and if people still have an appetite for it. If that's the case, great, main episodes. If not, it'll most likely be me doing a solo joint, which is great because I have... uh, 23 pages of notes. <laughs> so trust me, we're not going to run yeah. out of content. But when we say that this episode is francophobic, we don't mean like that it's racist towards the French. We mean legitimately we that are we terrified. are afraid of these people. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say like the French are a sexuality. So it's like not a race thing. It's, oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's because they're so sexy. <laughs> yeah, I recently <laughs> learned about French juice, uh, which is uh, like this is like sort of tr- a traditional like cultural uh, drink there, where they mix white wine with black coffee. Oh yeah, baby, <laughs> let's go. There is no they just way drink that, that by the gallon. Uh, no, that's true. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's. Oh, I didn't steal that from a competing it's, podcast. It's or anything. the that's uh, real. it's the color of like the Capri Sun, but not like the juice. But you know, like the mascot that they had for it, the yeah. kind of silverish, like amorphic guy. That's yeah, what it looks like. He's like, like a Terminator. Yeah, but that's for actually juice. that's actually what French juice is. <laughs> so, to begin this uh, multi-part series, I'm going to read to you a quote that has resonated and stuck with me for probably the better part of four years and what really served as the impetus for why I wanted to look at this specific series of historical events and at French-Canadian society more broadly. On November 27, 1998, Maurice Boucher was acquitted of ordering the murder of two Quebec prison guards. The morning of his acquittal, Boucher and his Hells Angels gang members rode their motorcycles through the poor neighborhood of Hochelaga Maisonneuve in Montreal. The people in this borough treated it like it was a royal procession. That evening, Boucher attended a boxing card at the Bell Center. He was shown taking a seat flanked by his biker brothers. The appearance of Boucher on the Jumbotron led to a rapturous ovation, a standing ovation, a long one at that from his hometown crowd. When the fights finished, there was a massive lineup a few hundred deep of people hoping to meet Boucher and get his autograph. He had become a celebrity in Quebec, despite, or perhaps because, of the violence of a war that he started. In fact, many public opinion polls in Quebec showed that he was one of the most popular and best-loved men in the province, Mm. with much of Quebec media offering fawning coverage of the charismatic Boucher. The Crown was stunned by Boucher's popularity with ordinary Quebecois, and many police officers and prosecutors stated that this reflected the moral decay of Quebecois society. 
this is, is like Ned Kelly, but stupid. Is that is that a proper assessment? It really is. He, in a way, was a throwback to the criminal celebrity of the 1940s and 50s. But as we're going to talk about, even in just a few moments, it was a very different case. Now, what I want to answer over the course of these however many episodes is, was Boucher's popularity as the crown suspected part of social decay or... Were there other factors at play? Race, class, notions of French-Canadian national identity. Maybe he was a tangible example of history's great man theory, where you have one particular figure that is able to transcend and harness all of these disparate notions to rise above everything and leave an indelible legacy in both the Canadian underworld as well as mainstream Quebecois culture. Like Bill Nye. Like Bill Nye. (laughs) Uh, Probably at least... Two convicted murders more and probably 30 to 40 uh, orchestrated murders more than Bill Nye, but otherwise, yes. Someone who has left this mark on history that can never be erased. I thought uh, Bill Nye pulled the trigger on Benghazi. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong about that one? One day, Chance will get over Benghazi, (laughs) but that is not today. I'm sorry. Bill Nye ain't going away. Uh, Bill Nye had to sit for 36 hours and be grilled testimony style. Like yeah. yeah. Lock him up. That's right. <laughs> they were like, so what's the physics of, well, you know? <laughs> so before we can dive deep into the Quebec biker war, we need to first establish the social historical culture of Quebec at the time and then the biker subculture. To handle the first, I'm going to turn it over to Megan. Yeah, so I did research, quote-unquote, which was reading a bunch of Wikipedia pages, of course. I didn't really know anything about Quebec before I did this research. I know a couple people from there, and I know they speak French, and that's (laughs) about it. I learned for the first time about the Quiet Revolution. Has Mm -hmm. anyone else heard of it? Yes. So this is something we mentioned very, very briefly in our episode on the RCMP, Mm -hmm. because a lot of what occurred with the FLQ, who we're also going to touch on in the October crisis, which I'm going to mention, came as a response to decades upon decades of cultural repression pre-Quiet Revolution, and then in the Quiet Revolution. Megan, why don't you Yeah, so it was, the gist of it is basically like the Catholic Church used to have a really strong hold on Quebecois society in general. Like, they controlled the entire healthcare and education system. They didn't even have their own provincial healthcare system at all. And so then in, it was basically over the course of the 60s is like generally when the Quiet Revolution is, but obviously there was like some aspects of it started a little bit before and it Mm -hmm. continues, honestly, even now, like it was very influential, but they basically did this whole nationalization, um, quote unquote nationalization, because it was like provincial, but um, of a lot of their assets. So they created their hydro company, like Mm -hmm. I forget what it's called. Yeah, Hydro-Quebec. They like created a provincial healthcare system, education system. It was like an extreme secularization very quickly of society that was like very Catholic beforehand. Um, unionization numbers went up a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, they The government was actually like very conducive to unions and like pushed for it to happen. Aside from Hydro-Quebec, they created like a, a bunch of other um, nationalist um, extractive industry companies. So mm-hmm. they did a lot of that. But it was, again, in, like it's a cultural shift and an economic shift. Basically, after the Quiet Revolution, like obviously French language was part of it, but then their their sort of like movement for sovereignty and like Quebec, like keeping the French language started more in the 70s mm-hmm. and then onwards in like continues now. Obviously, like the Bloc is a huge party representation in Quebec right now. In the 80s, there was like Bill 101, which was the the French language bill that basically made it so that you have to learn French in school and you can only get, you can only have English education if your parents were educated in English. Commerce languages have to be all French. It's like the signage, like English has to be smaller on signs and things like that. There was actually like quite an exodus of English-speaking people from Quebec mm-hmm. when this happened in the 80s because it was basically like so much of Quebec was controlled by English-speaking business people that like the French considered themselves like there's a quote on Wikipedia that they were like the water boys of their own nation because yes. they like didn't really have very much economic or political power in Quebec. So then a lot of English people left Quebec and um, now their commerce is mostly in French and it gave a lot of like engineers that were French that were leaving Quebec prior to this French language bill like could stay in now. So now we know them as a pretty French province, but they, they were honestly losing it a little bit at one point. So, yeah. Yeah. So 
I'm glad you touched on that. Another important aspect of uh, the Quiet Revolution and what it wrought was, and this is stuff we've touched on, the various aspects of Quebec nationalism and French-Canadian identity. Uh, essentially, this was an ideology that pushed against Anglo domination, and it's led to things such as the passage of Bill 101 to not only even the playing field, but essentially shift the balance of power from the Roman Catholic Church to the Quebecois people. So eventually, this nascent nationalist movement created a strong and well-supported sovereignty movement. The FLQ, Frontier, uh, what is it? Frontier de Liberation de Quebec. Yeah, and that was like, again, the, as the sort of the quiet revolution was happening, like the FLQ was active throughout the 60s and it culminated like in 1970, I think yes. was the, the October, October crisis, crisis um, year. Um, but they had been like bombing and doing a lot of stuff since like literally 1961 or yes. two or something. Yeah, that, that was like a big thing for sovereignty. And then that, well, we all know what happens. They went to Cuba and then yes. fun times. So I'm going to pick up this story post-October crisis. And this is another thing we touched on very briefly in an RCMP episode. Uh, the RCMP's handling of the October crisis is famously one of the biggest debacle in a history full of debacles for that <laughs> yeah. corrupt fucking organization. And in the aftermath of such, they saw a lot of their powers and funding stripped away. That was when the creation of CSIS uh, began. So they basically took the RCMP spying powers and then made a separate agency, which is obviously a problem in and of itself. But the RCMP, for all intents and purposes within Quebec, was a non-factor. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in 1977, a little group you may have heard of called the Hells Angels found their way into Quebec. Now, contrary to what you might believe, they actually weren't the first biker group in Quebec. In the 1960s, around the same time the FLQ started their campaign of bombing and destruction of property, the Popeyes Motorcycle Club was formed in Quebec. Oh, finger licking good. <laughs> what See, a name. The Popeyes. They were the first outlaw biker club in Quebec. You know what? I guess you have to have like a fumble, right? Like if you're the first in something, it can't be like a dope name like the Hells Angels. <laughs> like it's got to be something shitty. And what is so funny is as this story goes on, the names of the various clubs get less and less subtle and more and more ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the ones we don't talk about here but existed in the 1990s were the Paradise Rollers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a play on oh, words. On. I like that one. <laughs> Satan's Choice. Satan's Choice is actually yeah, Satan's Choice dope. is a fantastic yeah. name. Yeah. Obviously, the Hell's Angels. Yep. But in the 1960s, very quaint. They were the Popeyes. I like. I feel like Popeye <laughs> is almost like an er French Canadian character, uh, of a figure of much cultural import. He's like yeah. strong, incoherent, he, incoherent, <laughs> addicted to a strange substance that makes him powerful. <laughs> yeah. Instead of French juice, it's spinach. But yeah, you can you can yeah. make the read there. Has like PTSD of some kind. <laughs> um, yeah, just like vaguely angry. Only uh, eats things from cans. Yeah. Has has a feud with a burly bearded man that is just on site. There doesn't really seem to be a reason for it other than it's like maybe a weird sexual tension. Yeah. His 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 best friend is a complete (laughs) moron. Yeah. His wife is being constantly abused and tied to railroad tracks. So that's classic. It all clicks. It that's all classic. Sense. That was actually in Bill 101. He said, we need more railroad tracks. We're running out of space. Yeah. Well, up. actually, getting your legs... I'm sorry to... No, no, go ahead. But getting your legs chopped off by railroad tracks is a, like, key feature of the Quebecois separatist uh, <laughs> group in Infinite Jest. <laughs> that actually is a trait. So the Popeyes were not the only club in Quebec in the 1960s. They had two main rivals, Satan's Choice and the Devil's Disciples. Oh, fuck yes. What a weird trio. I love these people. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. But despite the fact that they had by far the least intimidating name out of any of the clubs we will cover, the Popeyes actually prevailed in this battle, largely thanks to a man by the name of Eve, the Mad Bumper, or Apache Trudeau. <gasps> now, Eve Trudeau was the main muscle for this group. He was six foot five, 135 pounds. Whoa. Oh my God. <laughs> main muscle. That's like a fucking Jack Skellington. Long yeah. hair, tattoos. He is what you would think a biker looks like, other than the fact that he is like 1% body fat. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, Despite being by far the most waifish and thin 
unintimidating looking guy he gained this reputation as like the undisputed killer in the quebec biker scene at the time he was like the boogeyman he was the least afraid to do blackface of exactly all of <laughs> <laughs> now quebec above almost any other location in north america always had a reputation for being the most violent location for biker crime in the world a journalist named patrick Latani noted that the violence that ensued cemented quebec's reputation as one of the most dangerous places for organized crime to do business in north america james dubrow a fellow journalist who worked with Latani, said there's always been more violence in quebec in the biker world it's known as a red zone i remember an outlaws hitman telling me that he was terrified of going to montreal it's wild to me because like you see like all these mob movies you think of like Vegas, you think of Boston, of New York as being like these havens of organized crime. Absolutely. Uh, but like the Quebec biker war, more people died here than any other altercation with the mob, with the Yakuza it's even. the most deadly yeah. organized crime event in history. Yeah. Holy over shit. 100 people died. There were over 80 bombs planted in an eight-year period. There were broad daylight shootings. There was, as we're going to get into What was that eight-year period? 1994, really seven years, but technically it ended in 2002, but 1994 until 2002. Damn. It was, it was the seven years war. And there was even more, there was like almost as much violence prior to that as well. So as the 1960s turns into the 70s, the Popeyes, they are the dominant group in Quebec. 1977, the Hells Angels, they want to expand north. They see the very vibrant biker subculture in Quebec, and they say, all right, that's our first spot. They move on up, and they decide to, and this is a term we touched on very briefly in our episode about the Shedden Massacre, patch over the Popeyes to make them Hell's Angels members. Basically just means that you're leaving one gang to join the other. Hmm. So in 1977, the Popeyes are no more. They are now officially the first Canadian chapter of the Hell's Angels. Now, the Angels' primary goal was to control all street-level drug trade in Quebec. The Montreal chapter would actually expand about two years later in 1979, splitting into the North and South factions. Now, in a very powerful moment of dumb guy uh, brain, the Northern chapter's headquarters were actually based in Laval, and the Southern chapters were based in Sorel. So the North was actually further South, and the South was actually further North, (laughs) which I think really did bode poorly for the organizational issues that would plague this group for the next 20 years. The Northern chapter was mostly comprised of the former Popeyes. And the Southern chapter was more of the, let's call them like expats and new recruits. So some of the Americans, as well as guys that would kind of earn their stripes within the biker scene. The Southern chapter was led by a man named Rajon Zig Zig Lissard. (laughs) (laughs) What a delight. And the man who led the Northern chapter was the original Popeye's uh, founder, a man also named Eve. Sorry, that's Eve Buteau and Eve Trudeau. They're in the same clubhouse. Okay. Eve's Bu- Eve Buteau's nickname was Le Boss. Okay. <laughs> cool. I, I like that, but I, what I more like, what really, really engages me is the idea that almost like a fourth grade class, there's like a Sarah V and a Sarah H. Yeah. Eve like B, the, e, yeah. Eve T. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. One of the them. most common themes in studying the Quebec Biker War is that there are like four French last names and maybe <laughs> yeah. six French first names. <laughs> it's it's like studying like French royalty in many ways. <laughs> about the same amount of sex, about as much of it is as weird as French royalty would be yeah. as well. There's some real Marquis de Sade stuff in the <laughs> life of some of these individuals. In 1983, the original uh, Popeye's leader, Yves Buteau, is killed by a rival gang member, which left a power vacuum at the top of the northern chapter. Eventually, it's filled by a man named Laurent Langlais Viot. And the important thing to know about this guy, because he's not going to be in this story very long, trust me, is that he had a very lax attitude towards drugs and alcohol, even lax by biker standards. Not like these guys were choir boys or anything, but generally it's like, okay, don't get too fucked up to where you fall off your bike or you accidentally give your drugs away or, you know, you just shoot people in broad daylight. All of these things were happening (laughs) (laughs) under the leadership of uh, Laurent Vial. It got yeah. to the point where... Like, there there were guys, uh, they'd get off their bike, they'd take a swig of their whiskey, they'd go they'd uh, go to bed with the horse and wake up in the morning and be like, what happened? <laughs> uh, they'd be comically hanging off of clock towers uh, by by the minute hand as it ticked down. It's ticking down, that's right. <laughs> it was terrible. Very A lot of Buster Keaton shenanigans. <laughs> so it was getting to the point in the mid-1980s where... 
the Hell's Angels were like, we're a big organization. We're making a lot of money. Guys, it's time to go legit. I like to think they saw Wall Street and they were like, we can do this. <laughs> yeah. We are as smart as these guys, which to be fair. <laughs> it's more or less right. And yeah. they're on about the same amount of cocaine. So it yeah. seems like a natural transition. Yeah. However, to it's do this. It's time for Hells Angels and Enron. We love right, that. right, baby. They need to go legit. <laughs> they want to be like an upstanding criminal organization. Kind of like the dominant force in the Montreal organized crime scene, the Rizzuto, fa- Rizzuto family. Oh, yeah. Rizzotto. The Rizzotto family. So Vito Rizzuto, uh, major, major player. <laughs> They're going to be something like the shadow brokers throughout this series. They're in the background. They're basically the number one force in Quebec. Even when the angels are at their peak, they aren't quite on the level of the Rizzuto family. So they're thinking, all right, if we want to start working with the big names, bringing in big money, we've got to clean up our act. We've got to go legit. Not a problem for the Southern chapter. They managed to pull this off pretty well, but the Northern chapter is having issues. Their leader, Laurent Vial, was addicted to cocaine, alcohol, and prostitutes. In that order. Nice. (laughs) The North chapter had taken at least $60,000 that was meant for other chapters and kept it for themselves so they could spend that then on, well, prostitutes, alcohol, and cocaine. Yeah. Essentially, when you have these two chapters, it's a shared pot. Everybody's supposed to get, you know, an equal share of whatever drug profits, whatever extortion profits. That stopped happening. The North started taking more and more for themselves. And this could, as you'd imagine, start to rub people the wrong way. Andre Celio, a crime reporter for the press newspaper, told uh, Pierre Obendroff of the Montreal Gazette, at the moment in 1985, the Hells Angels were doing a cleanup to become a real criminal organization. Before that, they were disorganized and unruly. They were like a street gang. The Laval guys, well, they weren't following the steps the others were taking. They fit the traditional image of bikers, and it was bad for business. At this point, they basically give them an ultimatum. Either clean up your act, or we're going to clean it up for you. Well, Yves Trudeau never quite got this memo, and it was his actions that would actually push this relationship over the edge. Basically, he's paid $98,000 for killing someone. He's a hitman. He realizes that uh, 10% of the tribute was supposed to go to the Northern chapter. So on top of the money he was paid, he's like, oh, okay, you owe me an extra 10%. But instead of giving that money even to his own chapter members, Yves Trudeau kept it for himself and blew it in one hour on cocaine. Oh my God. shit. (laughs) He had a massive cocaine problem, even worse than Laurent Vial. Like Trudeau had like most of Colombia up his nose. I think I'm still (laughs) confused. Is Trudeau or the other one? The leader. Bouteau was the leader and he died. So now it's just, it's okay, Trudeau. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, All right. yeah. yeah, he's French Scarface. Pretty much. <laughs> so by keeping this money, this was seen as like a crass violation of rules that have already been broken a thousand times. Yeah, you're supposed to like pay your penance, right? Exactly. The tribute was not given. The Southern chapter leader, Réjean Lessard, met with higher-ups from Eastern Canadian chapters. By this point, the Angels have a presence in the Maritimes. Actually, a quite strong one. There was a story, I want to say, two or three years ago about a gigantic bus that brought most of those guys in. But up until that point, like, they still had a stranglehold on any kind of organized crime in eastern Canada. Basically, all the leaders except for, you know, the ones from the northern chapter come in and they say, okay, we need to get rid of these guys. So they agree that they're going to stage an ambush at a clubhouse, bring the guys in, get rid of the ones they need to get rid of, and make an offer to the ones they like. We've heard this before. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this would become known as the Lennox Mil- Lennoxville Massacre, and it would directly inspire the Shedden Massacre 21 mm-hmm. years later. Yeah, the one that we covered before, right? Exactly. Yeah. So they throw a party. They say, all right, guys, everybody come to the clubhouse. There's going to be girls. There's going to be beer. There's going to be whiskey. There's going to be cocaine. We're going to be speaking French. But yeah, they said that <laughs> all, all right, in French. I'm out. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There's... Uh, going to be heroin there there's going to be you know what eve yeah sure whatever you said i can't understand you because you're literally (laughs) slurring into your drink it's going to be there though (laughs) whatever you want there's gonna be bikes you can ride your bikes there you guys love (laughs) i know you got you love riding your bikes (laughs) they did love riding their bikes yeah that was their whole thing and despite offering them all the milk and honey you could imagine nobody from the chapter showed up for the first night of the party (laughs) this is a multi-night party it wasn't supposed to be (laughs) And then when literally no one from the chapter showed up on night one, they said, God damn it. They extended the party to a second night and made attendance mandatory. (laughs) Kind of like when 
you know, you're a kid and the weird kid in your class throws a birthday party. You don't want to go, but your mom's like, you have to go. Yeah. This is very much There's the situation. There's going to be bikes there. There's going to be, be girls. There's going to be prostitutes. There's going to be You can smell. Okay. Only a little bit of cocaine. You're going to ruin your appetite. <laughs> <laughs> Ma, he speaks French. <laughs> I don't want to go. So on the second night, most of the Northern chapter show up to the clubhouse for this party. <sighs> Rejean Zigzig Lassard with 41 men under his command round up the members of the northern chapter put them in a circle shoot all but three of them to death the three that they decided to spare one of which was offered to join the southern chapter on the penalty of refusing his death so uh, yes he accepted <laughs> the other two were told you must retire from organized crime now or we will kill you which is a very strange leniency. Yeah. But the two guys agreed. Apparently. That seems like a sweet deal. Lassard just liked them. He's like, yeah, you guys seem cool. Don't come so to the <laughs> Notably absent from the second night of the party was Yves Trudeau, the one they wanted to kill the most. In fact, they put a $50,000 contract out on his head. Why did he miss the party? Well, a few days prior, he actually checked himself into rehab. Completely independent of this. Wow. He's like, I had no idea what was fucking going on. I barely knew where I was. But he was unable to attend the party. When he left rehab, he got himself into some trouble. He would actually get arrested in Belleville, shout out, for gun charges. He would get released. Or sorry, when he went in, he decided, he's like, all right, if I get released, I'm going to die. So he turned crown informant. Oh, no. Wait, how many people died in that massacre? Uh, Let me get the exact number. You can ballpark it. <laughs> I, I, I'm just wondering. Yeah, just yeah. make it up. Well, because they so, spared uh, three. I was like, what yeah, percent? Five, five killed, three okay. uh, survived. Alrighty. And oh, well, that's not that bad. Well, I feel like I, I was thinking maybe if they killed like twenty and spared three, they really liked those three. But maybe <laughs> they just really hated the other five. Uh, the other five know. were just seen as being like so useless and like such big problems. They're like, okay, these other three guys, that's fine. But you guys are real big fuck ups. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the one they wanted most was Trudeau. And him not being there sent shockwaves throughout the organized crime world. Because when he turned to be a crown witness, or he pled guilty to 43 counts of manslaughter, and his uh, testimony led to the arrest of over 38 Hells Angels members. Oh, Damn. God. He decimated this group in the 1980s. Just to prove that there are no heroes in this story. So after Eve Trudeau gets released, because, you know, he gets his testimony. This is a man who did 43 counts of manslaughter and served seven years. Yep. He got released in the 2000s. Uh, upon his release, he got addicted to cocaine again, uh, then molested a 13, sorry, a 13-year-old boy oh and went back to jail where he died in 2008. Oh, my God. Of bone marrow cancer, so uh, very fitting punishment for- Wowzers. Once again, a man who killed 43 people and raped a 13-year-old boy. Not good. Damn. Do you want to know my cultural research on Quebec from the 1980s since Absolutely. we're there now? Absolutely. Um, Celine Dion. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> she was making music videos where much. her hair was really big and she had these funky 80s sunglasses on and she kept like lowering them in the video. It was very fun. That's, that's quite also, the palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> Hip hop was was really big um, yes, at the time. Was perfect. And yet Quebec was still really racist. Yes, and- it was. This is the perfect time <laughs> for me to jump in. So another consequence of this Lennoxville massacre is uh, a lot of the other biker groups seeing this obviously had some very strong opinions on the matter. Most were like, we better not fuck with these guys. But there was one group in particular led by a man named Salvatore Cazetta, a group that called themselves the SS. Oh, no. Uh Is that a reference to the Squirtle Squad? That's right. (laughs) So they were led by a small blue turtle with sunglasses. Uh, No, Salvatore Cazetta, the leader of the SS, a group that originally was formed specifically for the purpose of beating up immigrants and trying to send them across the border. Like, he would literally just go track down non-French Canadian people and say, you need to get the fuck out of here. Christ. He sees this massacre and he's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? He's like, you can't just kill your fellow bikers. And like, this is a weirdly principled stance for the leader of the SS to take. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, I'm never going to work with these guys again. However, his right-hand man, a man by the name of Maurice Montboucher, who at this time is serving 40 months for raping a 13-year-old girl, sees the brutality of the Lennoxville massacre and says, I found my best friends. Oh, God. It's time for us to meet mom. It is nuts to me how many of these people were rapists. Yeah, uh, not surprising. No. you got to understand that a lot of the people at this time that were attracted to this outlaw subculture, with some notable exceptions we'll cover later on, were people on the fringes of society. A lot of them were ex-cons. A lot of them did have history of violent offense or 
petty crime on their record for decades in advance. Nobody in the story is a hero. No. In fact, the people you would see cast as heroes in a movie about this, you know, the detective or the police were as corrupt as the bikers. Yeah. Let's talk about Maurice Boucher. This is the closest thing we have to a main character in the story. Uh, he's one of the only people that survives all three parts of it. Okay. So most of the people I'm going to tell you about die in some way, usually by the end of each episode. For instance, Yves Buteau, Yves Trudeau. Spoilers. But Maurice Boucher has an incredible survival instinct. He was born June 21st, 1953 in the poor district of Montreal, Hushalega Maisonneuve, which we talked about at the top of the episode. His father worked construction and struggled with alcoholism. Boucher was one of seven children. And his father worked for the infamous André Didi Desjardins, a man known in Quebec as Le Roi de Construction, or the King of Construction. Desjardins was a mob-affiliated former union leader whose greatest claim to fame was basically transferring power in construction from the unions to the mob. He would then ride that mob affiliation to becoming a full-on organized criminal himself. He had a massive loan shark extortion uh, empire. And apparently he was not the most gentle boss and foreman. In fact, a lot of people speculate that uh, Maurice Boucher's father's issues really stemmed from the way he was treated by his boss. Thank God that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, right? no, that's over. Yeah, there's no only Only the mob would treat their, their employees so terribly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> only right. organized criminals would be so cruel. So Maurice Boucher drops out of school in ninth grade to uh, basically take a bunch of various odd jobs. He committed his first known crime in 1973 when he robbed a convenience store for $200. Uh, he briefly worked construction with his father, but only lasted two weeks, largely because he did not respond well to taking instruction from others, especially when that instruction came from someone like André Desjardins. Mm -hmm. Boucher was interviewed by a police psychologist following his second uh, stint in the jail. He did a B&E and brought a hunting rifle with him. So that upgraded his charges from just a B&E to like, oh, yeah, this is armed robbery now. Mm. Mm -hmm. This is what the criminal psychologist had to say. He was an ambitious man who wanted to get rich without working. He was the result of an abusive childhood and he lacked emotional empathy. He was a very cold hearted individual who regarded violence as acceptable and encouraged behavior. Between 1975 and 78, he would be in and out of jail for another series of robberies. He found literally the perfect job for himself then, really, if he you think did. about it. Yeah. He, and we're going to touch on that. In 1979, he does get a steady job working in, and this sounds like a lot of fun, a plastics factory. So his lungs yeah. are just coated with, you know, all a manner of awful unspeakable chemicals yeah he's he's making plastic popeyes toys in a in a cruel twist of fate. <laughs> that's right <laughs> by 1982 though he finds his true calling as a biker for the ss the ss eventually diversify their portfolio from just beating up immigrants to of course selling drugs he would be arrested in 1984 for the aforementioned sexual assault of that girl serving 40 months. Hears about the Lennoxville massacre says, all right, I want to join the angels. He goes to Salvatore Cassetta and he says, man, I've gotten in, come with me. We can go work for the angels. And he says, Jesus, man, how many times do I have to tell you this? No, fuck off. So the two of them go their separate ways. Boucher joins the angels now decimated by the testimony of Eve Trudeau with so many vacancies in the angels organizations, the charismatic, cold hearted and ambitious Maurice Boucher rises very, very quickly. Around the same time as old running buddy, Salvatore Cazetta, he starts what would become known as the Rock Machine. I don't know what the taxonomy of the naming is, but this was his rival biker gang, the Rock Machine, and they swore a vendetta against the angels. Is this a machine that makes rocks or rock music? I think it is a reference to rock music based on what I'm going to tell you in the second part of the series. Rock and roll, very big part. It also jives well with this outlaw subculture. So the rock machine, they're formed. We have the Hells Angels, of which Maurice Boucher starts climbing the ladder, owed largely to this kind of inexplicable charisma. So Boucher was, unlike a lot of other organized criminals, to where he would pose for pictures from the press and, like, paparazzi. In fact, famously, the episode picture is him looking like Elton John giving a peace sign. Mm -hmm. He's a very strange... He looks like... 
your next door neighbor. Yeah, he looks like a like a garage dad. Like he has, someone who spends too much time working on his car. He has yeah. a Bill Gates haircut. He has round frame glasses. He looks like he works in tech, like yes. as an IT guy or something. He has like a very cherubic face. Like he is not what you would expect to find from the top No, he doesn't biker. seem rough and tough and tumble. Right? He And most of the pictures we have are of him hugging his friends. <laughs> very strange <laughs> man. Here's another quote. He has just this strange charisma in this way with people. He's very intelligent in the way that he runs people. He's got very high leadership quality. If he were legitimate, he'd be a great manager for any business, small business tyrant. He rules by fear. People respect him because they fear him, not because he's respectable. Another quote from Within the Hell's Angels, Monsieur Boucher is considered like a god. When I'd see the other angels around him, they were full of admiration. I was like, man, I wish I could have that. Though always considered to be unimpressive and an indifferent student, he showed an impeccable attention to detail while working with the angels. In fact, his nickname, Mom, came from the way he would pester his men with every question and detail to make sure they were fully prepared for whatever job. Huh. Literally, like, as they're leaving, he's like, uh, did, you for, did you remember to pack a raincoat in case it get cold? Do you have the sandwiches I made for you? It's like, uh, yes, Maurice. All right. <laughs> just kissing each of them on the forehead as they yeah, walk out the door. <laughs> uh, make sure you calls me at 10 p.m.s. <laughs> so by 1988, he is the lieutenant of the Quebec chapter of the Angels. So basically second in command, which is a ridiculous rise when you remember that he basically joined them in 1986 as soon as he got out from jail. Mm. Yeah. So let's recap Boucher's rise to power. Basically owed largely to the fact that he would kill anyone, do anything, and was very charismatic with those around him. Also aided by the fact that the Angels experienced a massive loss in senior membership when Yves Trudeau turned crown witness. That's going to become a very common theme in this. Bikers love snitching. Oh, yeah. There's literally only one biker in this entire story who does not snitch. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so now we're getting into the pre-war period. This is the late 1980s, early 1990s in Quebec. And Boucher, as he's climbing the ladder, his plan is to, well, pretty simply eliminate the other biggest rival they had at the time, the outlaws. He wants them out of Quebec. And in fact, by December 1990, thanks to a campaign of terror, so killing a lot of guys, scaring the rest of them, and then, uh, well, a lot of these guys just going to jail because they're not the best criminals. There's only 10 outlaw bikers left in Quebec. 10 total. Whoa. Wow. Mm. They are greatly outnumbered by the angels who at this point number into the hundreds. By 1992, uh, Boucher, sorry, in 1992, Boucher would establish a puppet organization known as the Rockers. Essentially what this was is this is a group just below the Hell's Angels. And the only way you could be promoted from a rocker to an angel is if you killed someone for the angels. So this gives him basically a hitman squad that gives him plausible deniability. Oh my so God. he can order all the killings oh he wants. And believe me, he's he outsourcing. Does. He literally <laughs> is globalizing. <laughs> Holy shit. And he's like, okay, if you want to be a Hell's Angels, you're in the rockers. You've got to kill, you know, this rival or you've got to kill this journalist or you have to kill this cop. They do it. If they get caught... Who cares? They'll go to jail. If they snitch on them, they're dead. Mm. Yeah. Most of the time, though, they don't get caught. And even if they do, it doesn't come back to Boucher. Right. That's a very smart move. And the Rockers would really do the bulk of the damage in the Quebec Biker War. In the early 1990s, they begin to work with the Rizzuto crime family, mostly working on importing cocaine into the city. This partnership was facilitated by uh, Vito Rizzuto's right-hand man, Ray Desjardins. Like I said, there's four French last names. Yeah. <laughs> also good, though, Ray Desjardins is not going to be playing a big role in this story. Okay. Spoilers. <laughs> the RCMP, though they are still quite diminished within Quebec, they take note of this partnership, and they bug the phones of both men. The two would speak openly about their plans. Straight up, the cocaine is coming to the harbor. Great, thank you. <laughs> Despite this, though, they could not indict Boucher on any charges. What? Including what happens next. In August of 1993, a boat called the Fortune Endeavor, ridiculous name, yep. is a large cargo ship that's carrying over 750 kilos of cocaine. The ship stalls at sea. Knowing that they are fucked if the Coast Guard comes by, they take the shipping container filled with cocaine and they just drop it over the side. Yep. Sink it to the bottom of the harbor. 
the Hells Angels would then send out a scuba squad. I was literally just going to make a joke like, wow, I really hope they hire scuba divers to go get it. <laughs> oh, my just God. gave their guys, some of whom had never done scuba diving yeah. before. Oh, my God. Yes. They just gave them, like, flippies, a mask, <laughs> and a breather. And were like, go like they just went game. to Le Walmart <laughs> yeah. and got that shit. Oh, my God. You won't be surprised to know that they do not find the cocaine. Oh, no. Rather, the Navy, with professional divers and mm. sonar, they're like, hey, what's this gigantic shipping container doing at the <laughs> bottom of the harbor? They pull it up, they open it up, and find 750 kilos of cocaine yep. inside. Shit. Which they definitely kept for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so they were able to uh, indict Desjardins on drug trafficking, and he would actually go down for this. He would take the take the. Uh, what, take did he write rack. his name on the container? They just had so much evidence, and I think essentially it came down to either you did this or your boss did this. And he's like, no, I did this. Yeah. Because <laughs> you really do not want to cross Vito Rizzuto. Mm-hmm. Plus, uh, Desjardins had a pretty good idea that when he went to jail, he wasn't going to be too hard done by. Yeah. He actually lived the good fellow's life in jail. Oh, yeah. He's making the sauce with the onion and the razor blade. We love to see that. Here's the exact quote. Oh, God. While, serving's time, while serving time for his conviction, Desjardins, Desjardins nicknamed the millionaire, exerted control over the institution and its prisoners. The renovation of a prison jogging track by a contractor with whom he was associated and paid for with his own money prompted a federal investigation. He what? He, he just went to the jail and was like, I will pay for you to install a running track. And they were like, sounds good. <laughs> he basically told them, he's like, your, your recreation facilities are not acceptable. They're like, okay. He's like, I have paid for them to be improved. <laughs> oh like, my God. What? Who was it where they uh, they gave him his own jail? Maybe Escobar. I think it was Pablo Escobar. Had that his sounds own jail. like an Escobar thing. Literally paid for his own jail where he could have whoever he wanted there. He just had to stay on the compound. Yes. Oh my God. So Desjardins was, quote, treated like a king and had his own personal computer and desk in his cell through which he facilitated numerous drug deals. Oh, my God. See, he should have just said, well, I'm paying for a door and it opens and we can leave now. And they would have been like, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, for him, he's like, hey, I'll serve my time. He, was, he literally made millions of dollars in jail. He got released and lived That's a that sweet life. Fossil mindset. Yeah, he was grinding. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. This is not the last time we're going to talk about the corrupt Quebec justice system, but we'll leave that there for now. 1994 was the best year yet for Maurice Boucher. He was made president of the Montreal chapter of the Angels and his old friend turned rival Salvatore Cazetta went down on drug trafficking charges. He now saw the chance to eliminate another rival gang and further his goal of monopolizing Quebec street crime. He decided to strike the rock machine while they were at their most vulnerable. Basically, he would go into the various bars and independent drug dealers affiliated with them and say, all right, you work for me now. And if they said no, he would either beat them up, torch their bar, or kill them outright. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like a scale of severity. He would just make that decision while he was there, which then led to this very unpredictable streak. As a result, most people were like, yeah, okay, sounds good. The ones that did resist, well, they faced a lot of bloodshed. On July 14th, 1994, uh, three rockers entered a motorcycle shop owned by a man named Pierre Doust, who was a member of the Death Riders, basically an affiliate of the rock machine, and a man who refused to turn his business over to the Angels. The three assassins called out his name, he responded affirmatively, and then they shot him 16 times in broad daylight. Despite the fact that there were people in the shop at the time, none of the three would actually serve time for this crime. Oh my God. And thus, the Quebec Biker War begins. So, the ultimatum the Angels gave to all the street-level crime and the death of Pierre Doust sent violent shockwaves throughout the organized crime world. Independent drug dealers in Montreal would essentially band together to form the Alliance to Fight the Angels, which is the most anime name for a group (laughs) I have literally ever heard. (laughs) And they sought immediate retribution for the murder of Doust. In fact, the day after he was killed, someone tried to kill Normand Robitaille, who was an upper-level member of the Hell's Angels Support Club. He survived the shooting and would be going to become one of the most powerful angels in all of Quebec. And obviously, the angels didn't take too kindly to one of their big-time members being targeted, so things began to escalate. The Alliance, knowing that they weren't going to be able to hold up to the angels' pressure if they didn't have some additional help, turned to a group known as the Dark Circle for assistance. Spooky. Is that like an asshole? <laughs> it's a bunch of assholes. Yeah. <laughs> the dark water, the dark, I was going to say the dark water because it sounds like some black water shit. Now, what I'm going to tell you 
is something that sounds like a modern day conspiracy theory, but mm-hmm. this was confirmed and true and happening in Quebec in the 1990s. The dark circle was led by a council of five businessmen in the Montreal area who were secretly engaging in organized crime and the drug trade. The chairman, Michael Duclos, was a Montreal school teacher who also owned a bar that was a front for laundering profits for the drug trade. You had a secret organization of Montreal businessmen who were now providing financial support for the Alliance to Fight the Angels. What? And, and, and he's also an elementary were, school yeah, teacher. Yeah, so they were like sort of small time, like small business owners who were also <laughs> teachers who also helped the mob. Yes. Okay. These were guys who owned bars, restaurants, like anything that could be used as a front for drug yeah, money. something you can wash mm-hmm. money with. Exactly. And like a lot of them were school teachers or businessmen. One guy owned like an enterprise rent-a-car. Cool. Huh. And they I were completely unknown to even the angels and all their various police they paid off. It took them years to find out who these guys are. And if you look up the Dark Circle Montreal now, you get nothing. Why? These guys have essentially been erased from history outside of the Quebec biker war. And these were guys that had like millions of dollars. This is the strangest aspect to me. The fact that the dark circle existed and they were like, yeah, let's go to war. Fuck it. Let's go. Yeah. And it's, again, it's like five guys from the country club. It ended up being a lot more than five. There were five councilmen, but it was oh, like gotcha. a chamber of guys. There oh, were like, God, that's even yeah, so much weirder. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, it's like that Simpsons episode. It, they're basically the stone cutters. Yeah. Wait, and so this ends up being the people that the Hell's Angels went to war with, or yeah, okay, they, because they were basically told you can. They, the angels didn't know they were the dark circle, but they would go to them and be like, "I want your restaurant," and they'd resist. Mm. And then to protect them and try and drive the angels off, they pumped a whole lot of money into funding the alliance. Okay. So at this point in the story, you have two factions. You have the Hells Angels and their various subsidiaries like the Rockers and a group I'm going to tell you about in a second. And then you have the alliance, which is comprised largely of the Rock Machine, another group called the Peltier Clan, and the Dark Circle. Those are the three big chunks of it. Dark Circle is kind of like... Uh, the people who pay for the security stuff for the mob type deal, right? Exactly. They are the money. Whereas the Peltiers and the Rock Machine are the muscle. And they're also kind of like war profiteers in this case. They are definitely war profiteers. (laughs) They've been making money off every illicit trade you can imagine. Jesus. This is wild. So on the same day of uh, Norman Robitaille's attempted assassination, the Surette du Québec, so their provincial police, announced that five members of the Rock Machine had been arrested on conspiracy charges. They had planned to blow up the South Shore Clubhouse of the Angels Support Club, a group called the Evil Ones. (laughs) So cool. (laughs) That's very high school. That's cool. I know. So the Rock Machine guys, they basically planned to plant a bunch of dynamite like under the floorboards in this club and just blow it up. In fact, dynamite was like the primary weapon used in this war. (laughs) What? Is it 1860? Right. It's just because there's so much construction and so much of it is mob affiliated. They could just like Um, go to these sites, take like... 10 sticks from the quarry and they would just write it off and be like, oh yeah, we use those. That is insane. And like both sides were just throwing dynamite at each other basically. (laughs) Jesus Christ. That's like, that is, I can't think of a weapon that would have more bystander casualties, more like self-inflicted injuries. Uh Like I cannot think of a single thing that is more ridiculous. (laughs) Recklessly dangerous than throwing dynamite around (laughs) in a city. Yeah, because this is happening in Montreal. Like, yeah. that's, not, that's not a loose, like, I'm going to target this place. Yeah, it's, like, it's not you're like gonna... you're going to a farmhouse. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. It started in Montreal, but after the attempted assassination of Robitaille, the Angels' leadership meets and decide to take the war province-wide. Now you'd have chapters across the province just waging war. And that's bad news for the Alliance because they're really only consolidated in Montreal, where they're mm. already outnumbered. But by taking this a province-wide war, they're stretched really thin. November 1994 saw the first major assassination attempt against Boucher. Similar kind of plan, except this time they take a big white van, they fill it with dynamite. Jesus Christ. And they park it outside his favorite restaurant, planning to obviously blow him up when he gets there. Mm -hmm. This is how 9-11 happened. (laughs) Well, this is how the World Trade Center bombing happened. Yeah. (laughs) Literally a white van and they had a remote control device. However... They park the van at the restaurant but before Boucher arrives. A Montreal parking cop sees that it's parked illegally and tows it away. <laughs> <laughs> that is no okay. Way. Okay. All right. Oh my God. That is the most Montreal thing to ever happen. I swear to God, parking in Montreal is a goddamn travesty. And I would, I would imagine, 
roughly 70 to 80% of all assassination attempts are foiled <laughs> by, by ticket by maids. By parking. Yeah, yeah. meter maids. By law enforcement. <laughs> it's the most yeah, dangerous job. They are job. the heroes of that city. It's the most dangerous job in Montreal. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so now's a great time to talk about another figure. A figure that's going to make it all the way to episode three. A guy with maybe the greatest criminal name ever. Danny Kane. Ooh. You think his brother Scott the Undertaker, but no, just Danny Kane. <laughs> That's pretty good. Who was raised in an upper middle class home in Lacadie, Quebec. He attended a private school and was quite literally a Boy Scout. Oh, Citizen Kane. He got into the criminal biking scene at age 16, literally as Teenage Rebellion. He's just like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, that's he, awesome. He starts joining this club. Yeah, that he read Catcher in the Rye and he's like, <laughs> fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing matters. He watched Evangelion and got nihilistic. <laughs> so he joins a club that would be assimilated by the Angels, but they don't really treat him like an Angels member. He's basically just like their errand boy. Mm-hmm. And eventually he's like, give me a chance to prove myself. They're like, okay, we're going to task you with expanding the Hells Angels into Ontario. Specifically, they gave him a series of biker clubs in Toronto called the Demon Keepers. But these clubs were set up to fail. It was basically just busy work. Mm -hmm. And it was used to try and discourage other bikers from joining the other outlaw agencies in Ontario at the time. So they fell apart. And this left him feeling... Very, very disillusioned. When he get pick up on, picked up on gun charges, he decides, you know what? Fuck these guys. I hate them so much. I'm going to be an informant. Oh. So Danny that's what Kane. That's you get. You, you mess around. That's right. They fucked around and found out. Now, another interesting thing, a little wrinkle about Danny Kane, who's one of the most fascinating characters in this story. He was closeted bisexual. That's an incredible rarity in the biker world to have anybody that even had homosexual urges. In fact, Danny Kane would end up dating a fellow biker later on in the war, and they obviously kept this very under wow. wraps. That's badass. He's an interesting dude. He's probably the closest thing we have to a good person, but bear in mind, he also kills a He's lot of people. He's the closest thing yeah. we have to a good snitch. <laughs> He's actually the best snitch. A lot of the information I'm going to give you comes from him. Huh. Uh, buy snitches, get kisses. <laughs> and he got a lot of them. In fact, <laughs> as an informer, Danny Kane, who was obsessed with sex, was noted for odd behavior, like calling various detectives at like 2 a.m. to say that he had just had sex with some stripper and then putting the stripper on the phone to talk about it. <laughs> this is on the record. So he's a chat. There's like notes about him having sex with strippers in Montreal hotels. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so weird. That's so weird now he was i like that though he was an imperfect informer in fact some of the information sold by kane to the rcmp was quite self-serving and incorrect as when he named another (laughs) angel as responsible for a murder that he himself had committed in 1995 (laughs) well he was working for the crown (laughs) what an idiot (laughs) what an asshole however they did note in general his information was accurate and played a big role in ending the war years later yeah i'm sorry can the stenographer note that i have a massive goddamn hog (laughs) just like the biggest fucking Dinker. It ain't the one I ride either. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, we're into July 1995. Officially, we're at the one one year mark of the war. This is the next major development in the story. Obviously, there's a lot of like street level crime that goes on, but I have trimmed a lot of the fat from this to the, give you the most coherent story. The fat being many people getting murdered with dynamite. It's mostly just like bikers trying to shoot each other and failing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like the amount of like, oh, on yeah. this date, this attempt was made and it's like, god damn it. Mm-hmm. They're just like using vats incorrectly. That's right. <laughs> so Maurice Boucher has a brilliant idea to found what he calls the Nomads, which would be an elite chapter of the Angels. In fact, Boucher would tell Danny Kane that he wanted the Nomads to be plus rock and roll, which roughly translated works out to something so cool it's dangerous. Ooh. The Nomads were named as such because this chapter knew no geographical limits. Essentially, this is like his elite most elite hit squad that could just go across the country doing whatever they wanted, Mm -hmm. which actually rubbed a lot of Hell's Angels the wrong way, both the ones in Montreal and even some of the ones in the United States who felt like this kind of upstart group were taking the shine away from them. However, no one ever told Maurice Boucher about any animosity they may have felt, fearing, well, what he would do. And it's at this point that we're going to do a quick recap and end the episode. Let's talk about some important key characters and factions and where they stand. So the northern chapter of the Hells Angels, liquidated, killed in the Lennoxville Massacre. Not a factor anymore. Boom, off the table. The southern chapter, they're still alive. They're the dominant Hells Angels now. Yves Trudeau, 
After the massacre in Lennoxville, he would turn to a crown witness, provide a lot of information that led to the arrest of over 30 Hells Angels in the 1980s, and would end up going back to jail and dying in the mid-2000s. Maurice Boucher, at this point, our career criminal is starting to climb to the very top of the Quebec biker world. Where our story leaves off today in 1995, he has founded his elite super cool rock and roll plus <laughs> yeah. nomad. Did he agency. still make them call him mom? Yeah, that was just his nickname. <laughs> Everybody called him mom. And it was like, okay, cool. <laughs> That's plus rock and roll, babe. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the Rockers, they're the orig- they're like the prospect club for the Angels. They do a lot of the murders, so Boucher can avoid any kind of implication. Uh, the Outlaws, gone from the Quebec biker scene. The Rock Machine, they're the primary muscle for the Alliance. The Alliance itself comprised at this point of three main parts. The Rock Machine, the Peltier Clan, and the Dark Circle. And looking forward to the next episode, things do not go well for the Alliance. The next episode, which it'll get released somewhere down the timeline. We're not going to do three of these back to back to back. This is going to kind of be infrequent. But in the next episode, this is very much the like midway to three-quarter point in any mob movie when they're riding high. This is Scarface before <laughs> he gets his back blown out. Yeah. This is Goodfellas before you know Ray Liotta gets all coke addicted and followed around by helicopters. Right. <laughs> We're they're really still in the prime, yeah. We are literally approaching one of the most profitable times in the history of Canadian organized crime. Like and, and it's in the middle of this turf war. It is almost exclusively because of this turf war. Wow. And let's bear in mind that we began this episode by talking about the cultural purchase Maurice Boucher had. We touched also briefly on Quebec's cultural history coming out of, you know, decades of oppression by the Roman Catholic Church. We saw the Quiet Revolution, and that led to an upswing in a lot of various different subcultures. And for the sake of our story, the one we're talking about is the biker subculture. I want you guys just to keep in mind the question we asked at the beginning. Why was Maurice Boucher so culturally resonant. You may think you have an idea now, but trust me, when we get into the second part of this story, especially what we're going to start off with, your understandings and notions might change quite a bit. But this is a good place to end it off. July 1995, one year into the Quebec Biker War, seven more to go. My question is, um, how exactly are they making a lot of this money? Because like you said, they have the money from this like dark circle people, like restaurant owners and stuff. And I know they're selling drugs, but like, so they continued to sell a lot of drugs while they were all like on high alert for being murdered. And like, it was going well. As well as working with other, like there's, uh, there's the Rizzuto family, but there's other criminal organizations within Montreal that the bikers will essentially work as muscle for and Mm. then get a cut of that. They also had a lot of extortion where they would just shake down local businesses for, you know, a percentage as protection money. Okay. Really things don't start getting into ridiculous territory until the angels become like the dominant force. And then I'm talking like hundreds of millions of dollars. Because I remember reading when (laughs) weed was getting legalized, like Vice was doing so much reporting on it because it's Vice, but um, (laughs) they were talking about how even in Quebec still, like the Hells Angels can control like a huge percentage of the, even just like the weed business. So like there was speculation on like how legalization is going to work in Quebec. Mm -hmm. And if people would like leave getting their drugs from the Hells Angels to like start buying it legally. But I can tell you most of my, like the Hells Angels are active in this area. Mm -hmm. Like where I grew up, if you were a dealer, you had to pay tribute to the Hells Angels. The Angels are like a monolithic, very powerful organization. Yeah. We're going to talk about them at their peak, but they're still incredibly entrenched in the Canadian underworld. But yeah, to answer that question, the drug trade was incredibly lucrative. They were working with other criminal organizations who gave them a cut for, you know, whatever service they provided. And there were just so many bars, restaurants, and strip clubs in Montreal for them to extort that Mm. it was like, it was just easy pickings. These guys are making thousands of dollars a week mm. and like paying out thousands of dollars a week to the police to look mm. the other way. So they basically True. had unfettered access to drugs, alcohol, prostitution, uh, doing hits for the mob. They would always contract out from within the organization. So if that person got busted, it couldn't come back to the mob. So there were bikers that were just like making $100,000 a pop killing people. Damn. Yeah. Oh my God. It was big business. Montreal was the center of the Canadian underworld. Yeah. I think my closing thought is, and I want to explore this maybe in the next two parts, but you know how like Quebec always has this reputation for being like corrupt just in general. I, I, and just like their construction and like even their government and everything like that. So I'm, I'm wondering how this underworld ties into it, but we can definitely 
address I that in the future. Actually, we'll address that. We're in fact the next part we're going to talk about is uh, how corrupt the Quebec justice system was at this time, mm. like literally pages, and that ties into as well the political sovereignty movement, federalism. Like, there's a lot of stuff that explains partially why Quebec was so corrupt at this time. Mm. So, yes, I love that. We are actually explicitly going to talk about that in the next one. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody, yeah. and hanging out with us while we learn about bikers. Someone mm. say something in French. Uh, joie de vie. <laughs> um, merci beaucoup. Uh, bidet. Fromage, baguette. <laughs> bidet. Uh, bidet. <laughs> I never learned French. I'm sorry. Anyways, okay. we'll catch you next time with a non-biker episode. You know, we're going to figure out what we want to talk about. But uh, if you enjoyed these, please let us know. And we'll continue to uh, do more of these little bonus side history projects in the future. Thank you so much, guys. Follow our Instagram. Love you. Bye.